Hey coach, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. Let's share the game. Awesome to welcome Transylvania University's Julie Falks to the Basketball Podcast. Julie has over 360 wins as a head coach and has been the head coach of Transylvania University for the last 10 years. Last year, she led Transylvania to remarkable achievements in 2022-23 season. Her team achieved a perfect record of 33-0 and secured the NCAA National Championship. During this historic season, they dominated opponents, averaging over a 20-point differential, scoring more than 70 points per game while holding their adversaries to under 50 points. Virginia also clinched her fifth consecutive Heartland Collegiate Athletic Conference title and completed two consecutive years of a perfect regular season. Folks began her head coaching career at Lewis and Clark College. During her 10 years there, her team posted seven winning seasons and made three consecutive NCAA tournament appearances while attaining a national ranking of fifth in the country. Coach Falks has been named Conference Coach of the Year seven times in her career and coached several academic and athletic All-Americans. In addition to coaching, Falks holds a master's in education degree and a PhD in leadership studies. Julie, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Awesome. It's going to be great to talk to you. What incredible run you're on at Transylvania and great success, especially over the last few years, but over your entire career. And maybe let's start with, I've seen you talk about it before, the three pillars. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah. You know, I think every program and culture has words that they rely on. And we keep ours very simple on one level. They're right over my shoulder. And it just says, show up, work hard, and adapt. And I think you know, for us, we talk about those always in terms of there's a scale. What is the low end scale of that look like? You're an average team, average student. And what is the high end scale of each of those look like? You're trying to win and compete for national championships. You're doing everything at a high level. And that starts with showing up. I think the first step of all success is just walking in the door. And so, you know, how do you come to practice? Are you there and actively participating? Are you bringing great energy? Are you the first to pick your teammates up? You know, what does it look like when you are an actual, you know, trying to be a national championship at practice versus the low end, which we all know what that looks like. You know, you're, you're last onto the court, you haven't stretched, you haven't gotten yourself ready, you go through the motions, you don't compete, and eventually the time passes and you're done. And so, you know, we like to talk about all the time, how can you show up? You know, lots of people say, you know, be where your feet are. And then how can you do that at a level that really makes you a part of, you know, the process moving forward versus somebody that everybody else is trying to pick up and you're taking energy away from other people. And so I think that's a huge piece of everything you do in life. You know, what does it look like when they show up in the classroom? Are they participating have they done their assignments? It's, you know, it's really applicable to everything in relationships, their future jobs. And so we want them to constantly think about not only they're there, but what can they control about themselves while they're there? So that's the first one. The second one is obviously pretty evident in terms of the work hard. You know, we have two phrases that we use a lot. One is it takes what it takes and you get what you earn. And There's no way around the process of if you want to win at the highest level, there is an amount of work that has to go into it of, you know, out of season workouts, out of practice workouts. At the end of the day, you just cannot walk into those big games 
and think you have the skill sets if you have not put in the time and you haven't really earned it. And that's been one of my favorite things about this team the last couple of years. This is a group of players who have gone above and beyond what it takes in terms of trying to win and trying to compete at the highest level. And so last year when they won the national championship and this year, I look around and think this is a group that has earned it. And, you know, we can feel really good about they didn't, you know, luck into it from the back end. They they went out and did what it takes. And then the last piece, I think, is just adapting. And, you know, that looks a lot of different ways for basketball and leadership. You know, for us, it's we are willing to do whatever it takes in any game to win. We have game plan A. We are willing to, get, you know, adapt to game plan B. For the players, that's, you know, sometimes this is your role today. We need you to score. Sometimes it's, hey, they, they've taken you out of the plan today and we need you to distribute the ball. And, you know, whether we're adapting systems of play or adapting who we are to what we need that day, we think all three are, are truly the foundation to being successful in life, not just on the court. I love it. And it speaks to your success, obviously, that your players and your program are following those three pillars as well. And you have a unique background, obviously, with a master's in, in education and a PhD in leadership studies. And, and, and the question I have is around transformational leadership, because I'm imagining you grew up in an era when it was more transactional. So Absolutely. I think a lot of coaches understand the value of transformational leadership, but the application of it is sometimes difficult because our role models, our mentors, what we're seeing sometimes on TV don't necessarily represent that. So I'm curious if you have any advice for coaches who aspire to be more transformational. Yeah, well, Chris, I think it's a really good point. And, you know, unfortunately, I think in some levels, coaching is getting back to trans transactional with NIL and the portal. You know, now you see choices being made on how much can you pay me and what can you do for me, which is in some ways a business model that we actually know fails. And, you know, if you take the top, you know, companies in the world, transactional companies fail at a higher, higher rate than transformational. And so when I talk to coaches about what their process is, you know, I, I have a science brain and I was a biology undergrad. And, you know, my brain kind of works in systems and science. And so the first piece I tell people is there is a ton of research on positive psychology creates greater results because it gives you a resilience to failure. And so if you are trying to train your team to have the best results, you know, there's a reason Wall Street right now is paying companies millions of dollars to come in and build trust and have high trust organizations because high trust organizations, high trust teams which come about from transformational leadership, win at a higher level. And so if you're really trying to be excellent and compete at the highest level, we now know, you know, talking to our teams as individuals, you know, they're people before athletes, that approach actually creates greater results. And so when I talk to people, that's the first thing I tell them is you can get things done through authority, obviously, you know, but if you're really trying to compete at the highest level, figuring out how to build trust, how to have everybody on your team understand what everybody's good at, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, you know, that piece of moving them forward, that really matters in outcomes. So I'm curious then, because you mentioned we're swinging potentially backwards, and I think another part of that is obviously coaches generally suggesting from a generational perspective that this generation is different than their generation. And that seems to be a blocking point for a lot of coaches as well, to be able to kind of get to this, again, a lot of ideas, and you've shared some already that are backed by evidence. 
It's like yeah. these these aren't new. These have been researched for 30, 40 years. And yet we still adhere to these old historical norms in coaching that uh, have never been researched and have no evidence behind them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, historical systems are hard to overcome. You know, I remember when I first read the book Moneyball when it first came out. And what a great example of historical systems that were hard to overcome. You know, you have all this math on how you should create your baseball team. And then you had the generations of, you know, individuals of this is how you do it and we know better. And I think we see that play out all the time in the science world when, you know, we get information that says, hey, this is a better way to do it. And then you have the, however, this is how it's always been done. And so, you know, I think it's really important to always look at why do you do things and is it effective and is there a better way? And maybe it's because of having the science background. You know, our coaching staff is kind of all based on some analytic brains. You know, that's a similarity between our whole staff. And so we're not as resistant to this is how we do it better. And, you know, and constantly running the numbers of 10 years ago versus now what leads to championships, what actually leads to winning percentage and outcomes. But I think that's a really hard piece of, it's what you said, it's it's what everybody knew. And we know it works to a certain degree, right? Like there, there's plenty of evidence that backs that you still get results in that system. But now we just know you can take it, you know, a few steps further in a new system. And I think the other piece is it's harder. You know, it takes a lot more time and energy to individually come in, build relationships, get to know everybody. And it's way harder on, you know, the teams that are constantly turning over. You know, Division One has now created a system that's trickled down to other divisions that every team year you have a new team. That's a much harder way to build trust. And it takes incredibly more energy if you're always having to create a new team and, you know, new bonds. And so in some ways, the old system's easier, especially with constant change. I have so many thoughts there, but one of them yeah. is AAU is the same. Like yes, my 10 year old daughter, pretty much her team has stayed the same yeah. all season. But my 12 year old daughter, literally, we don't know from game to game who's playing on that team. And to me, that's really, again, sending a message of really, really distorting what the reality of being on a team is. And it's really difficult for many young players, I'm sure, to be able to handle that. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I think you nailed it. I think anytime there's constant turnover, it is hard on an organization. You know, a long time ago, I got to see a great speaker. And one of the things he talked about is a leader's primary goal should be to retain, you know, retain people that are great for your program. And, you know, that really hit me in terms of it really matters on, you know, those kind of efforts. And, and we use the the saying attention for retention. You know, we've got to go out and make sure we are doing our part with every player on our team. I've got to do my part with my assistant coaches. You know, as an administrative level, we've got to be doing our part with all of our coaches to make sure they feel valued. But when you are in a system like AAU or, or you know, constant turnover because of the portal or whatever the reasons are, those are just inherently harder things to overcome. And I think you have to be a lot you know, a lot more intentional about what you're going to do in that system. But, you know, there's no doubt there's just downsides if you're playing with new people. And obviously you can learn, you know, there's lessons in everything. And so, you know, you can learn to make new friends and be adaptable. You know, that's a great time to be adaptable. But if your goal is to build trust for long-term success, it's much harder. 
I love the way you explain that. And uh, I'm curious then if you if you think like analytics have been widely accepted in sport and in basketball because the numbers are visible. But things that you share around positive psychology or I share around skill acquisition, motor learning are just not as visible. And is that one of the challenges? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I was asked once, you know, how do you how do you quantify some of the the things that we do in terms of analytics from a culture's perspective? And, and the real answer is I don't know. Besides, you know it when you see it sometimes in terms of, you know, you can see because we're not standing there with somebody filming us and you know, how many times did this happen? You know, how many positive touches do we have? And then how did that equate to, you know, their brains firing and those sort of things? You know, we don't have that sort of ability to control from a scientific perspective. But you do see it move forward in your team. And, you know, we we try to use a lot of different conversations and and other pieces that we know, you know, like one of the things that we know is praise the behavior you want repeated. And, you know, and if you were doing a, a study on neuroscience and trust, they would call that unexpected praise. And, you know, they have done the studies on, you know, if you in the first 48 hours of somebody who does something well, you point it out in public, you know, their brains will respond at a higher level, those sort of things. Well, I can't track that. However, I can see all the time that when we tell one of our players they did a good job and explain why, you know, everybody wants our brains are trained to want that similar feedback. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of great studies on, hey, when somebody does something well that's within your culture, you need to make sure you point it out and you need to do it publicly and not in a sense of, you know, tearing down somebody else. But, you know, we're trying to give constant feedback, not just of the X's and O's, but of behavior as a teammate, as a leader, as a first follower when they do that well so that everybody understands what that looks like and they get that feedback. Well, I love the podcast, Julie. I had no intent of going this direction and we're just having a great conversation. And I'm going to keep going because like I think about it, I'm curious what you think in terms of the disconnect, because I think what you just said is common sense. That is, as a human being, I I feel it's incredibly common sense. But when it comes to coaching, we don't always follow common sense. And that includes me. I know I've gone against those things that I know make sense to me about the way someone would want to be coached and the way someone would want to interact with me as a human. So I'm curious what you think the disconnect is. Well, I think you could say athletics in general. You know, like I think about when when fans enter the building, how they behave on Saturday is probably very different than how they behave on Sunday or how they behave on work on Monday. And so you think about there's just this, you know, arena culture that we live in that athletics has a separate behavior that is acceptable. You know, and one of the things I've tried to think about a lot, and you know, I mean, I've made plenty of mistakes in my career and lots of things I wish I had done different and try to use those as a learning block to be better. And, you know, one of the pieces that's acceptable as coaching is, you know, you can yell and you can do these different things. And what I, you know, I step back and learn from for me is. You know, if I'm yelling, you know, I didn't like a call and those sort of things, I can't do that and then also strategize. And so, you know, the last couple of years, I've spent a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out how can I have emotional control in those moments so I can be a much better coach. And then you think about your players reflect your behavior. And so if you're yelling at the ref, it is inevitable your players start, you know, getting the same frustrations. And so I think it's just hard that, you know, you take the norms that are accepted in athletics and then figure out, you know, is this helping us? 
And if it's not, how do we undo it? But the real hard part is, and one of the things I love is competition creates a change in behavior that you cannot replicate. I read a great study once about somebody who was terrified of jumping out of an airplane and they tested their adrenaline level before and after. And they landed, and as you can imagine, you know, all their cortisol levels were off the chart. And then they kept doing that, and their cortisol levels dropped. Well, what we know is competition does not replicate that. If you play in the Super Bowl, every time you go out in the Super Bowl, you are going to have this adrenaline surge. And you do it again, and it doesn't decrease. You know, the other day, we did end of games and scenarios, and one of our our fifth-year seniors is like, oh my gosh, my heart is pounding out of my chest. And here we are in practice, and there's no consequence. And so it is easy to talk about understanding, you know, how to control yourself and what it should look like. But when you add the surge of emotions, that's a whole different thing. And, you know, in the postseason on Monday, I could still my, feel my adrenaline levels start to start. You know, it's like the slow build towards Friday that happens you know, for four weekends in a row, hopefully that even though I understand it, you know, and I, and I meditate and I do all these things, it still happens. And what I'm really trying to do is get better at handling it. Well, we're going to talk about end of season, but I have one more thing to kind of get your thoughts on. And that is both of us have thrown around the word evidence-based. And I want coaches to understand that when we say that it means something that we've researched because other people have researched it. And then we've tried but not all of the evidence-based stuff works, does it, Julie? No, it, it doesn't always work. And, you know, and I think we are big, we call it a try again, try again culture, and which is a part of our adaptability. And, you know, if you are a player and we're trying to get past caring about whether you mess up or not, you know, you come off a screen, you didn't get it right. The first thing everybody says is try again. And how the freshmen respond to that is typically very different than the seniors because the seniors have now gotten to the point where, yep, didn't work, try again. But that's really, I think, what science is. You know, okay, here's a system that we believe in. There's evidence. We're going to try it. Did it work? Didn't it work? Figure out why we might think that is. And, you know, we're, we're constantly willing to try and do new things based on, you know, kind of what the evidence says. But all studies can also be distorted and people can come out with things of what they, they want it to be. And so there is a piece of you know, trying to figure out what is evidence-based and can you even replicate that? Do you have the personality? Do you have the players? You know, all those pieces play into it that all humans are different and, and we're working with humans. And so it's not as predictable as we'd like it to be. Well, and that's why you and I both, I'm sure, agree that we do not have all the answers. We do but not. We do have some things that we think are better ways. And that's yeah. really kind of how we phrase it. And coach, we're getting in the end of the season. You mentioned that already. And, and, and I know your conference, you do this. You mentioned that, that you play teams multiple times. So you play yeah. teams twice in conference, and then you potentially play them a third time, obviously, in the playoffs. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that process of playing a team the second time, whether you won or lose? Does it change? What are some different things that you do to get your team ready to play a team multiple times? Yeah, I think, you know, for us, there's a couple things. One, that might be a little bit different. We focus much more on ourselves than other people. And that has changed, you know, over time. And, you know, we we believe in what we do and why we do it and how it fits our player personnel. And so from the very beginning of the year, we are trying to do and implement the things that we believe will be successful in the postseason. Because the last thing that we want to do is go into this weekend of the conference tournament 
or the very first game of the NCAA tournament and overhaul and change who we are. You know, we would much prefer to have to adapt to some, you know, to other things at the beginning of the year than who we ever think we need to be in the postseason. And so I think that's step one for us is we are trying to build from day one who we believe we need to be at the end of the year. And that matters. And the second thing I think that we do that is really different and the coaches in this department say that's really different is we build in rest from the beginning. You know, we would like to assume, and that was even harder this year when the NCAA let us start sooner. You know, and so now we are starting at the end of September and thinking about what the mental grind will be for our players at the end of February and last year when we played until April 1st. And so at the beginning of the year, we actually always go three or four days on one day off. And so we don't go six days in a row until probably December. And then we only do that in December and January. And then we start backing off again to where we're taking Thursdays off. This past weekend, we gave them both days off. So last week we took off Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday. And what I keep finding is, you know, that emotional break away, they come back and they play harder and they, they're fresh. I thought we looked great in the last two weeks of the season last year, physically and emotionally. And so that's something that we do that's different. Last week, we canceled a shoot around in the morning because we thought sleep was more important than getting them out of bed. I'm a huge believer in sleep. There's so much studies on sleep and you know, the one thing I would never do is get my team up at 7 a.m. for an 8 o'clock shoot. I think the, the studies on that is so overwhelming that what you're going to get out of that versus what you lose is pretty significant. So we approach rest difference the entire year based on what we think we're going to need in the postseason. Well, I love that you went there. I was going to get into the, some of the peaking and tapering stuff. And a lot of the physiology around that suggests that obviously reduction in intensity or sorry, increase in intensity and reduction in volume as you get closer to the important games. The yeah. problem in basketball is there aren't that many non-important games. Yeah. Yeah. So you get balancing to this point that is cool. Yeah. They are now all important. And yes. so <laughs> figuring out how to balance that, you know, and then sometimes in the NCAA tournament, we looked at a weekend last year and we thought, my gosh, given how this team plays, our two guards, our one and two are probably going to have to play 37 minutes because of what they do. And that was the Saturday game. And so we went into the Friday game and we did change our plan a little bit and we played much slower than normal. It was not very exciting. And we decided to really just grind it out on Friday because we believed on Saturday we were going to have to expend an energy level with certain positions that we hadn't done because they just did something that was so different. You know, and so there's some pieces like that where even in the, the postseason, you know, you have to kind of figure out how do you make it through two games in a row. And I thought last year when we had the 10-day break, everybody, everybody phrased it to us as a negative. I mean, that was just the repeat. How do you deal with it? And I was so proud of our team. You know, we only looked at it as a positive. We got to rest. We got to have a great game plan that was very specific against a team that did things that were very different and hard. And you know, I thought the first couple of days we hadn't figured out the plan, but by the 10th day, we felt great about the plan. And so we loved it. And I thought COVID showed us how great it was sometimes to have longer breaks than normal in season that are just, again, viewed as a negative because it's not the norm. And I'm imagining on your team, they're not viewed as a negative because you create positive framing around these things. Yeah. And and as a coach, like I've, I've talked about these situations before where, you know, we walked in a gym, an opponent's gym, and then something was wrong in the gym. Maybe it was too cold or something like that. 
And obviously the first thing is for people to complain. But as a coach, my first thing was always to say, oh, this is awesome. You know, this cold is somehow a good thing in positive framing it. And I'm imagining that happens a lot within your program. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, again, like none of us are perfect. And so, you know, part of it is just constantly trying to evolve and be better. And to then also control what we can control. And so, you know, we, we draw a scale and it's, you know, on this side of the scale, it's just everything's going perfect. It's the, like, as you mentioned, the exact temperature we want. And I have a temperature dependent team, you know, the hotter, the better. It's the temperature they want. The reps call everything we want. We're all playing well. And that's great. And then if you go this far, how far down the scale can we go and still overcome the obstacles? Pre-game meal didn't go right. The bus was late. We didn't like the refs. It's cold. We're, you know, the week before finals, like how far down that scale can we go and still win? And I think that's a different way to phrase and appeal to their their mental toughness of it's great when we can win here. Can you can you prove to everybody you're so mentally tough that you can you can win here? We, if we had to play four and five, could you win? And I think that helps just get them to think about it differently versus we're not just going to win when it goes our way. If we go on the road and we feel like we're, nothing's going right for us and we're getting no calls, how are we going to overcome that and still be stronger as a unit? And I, that, I think, has helped our team and helped me sometimes when it's like, this is just not going, this is not going how we would draw it up. Hey, Coach, a brief time out from the podcast to bring you the Analytics Minute, sponsored by Hoopsalytics. Do you know which players should be taking what kind of shots? An analytics system like Hoopsalytics can help your team make better shot selection decisions. You can track every kind of shot each player takes, where the shots come from, rate the shot quality, track if the shot was contested, and see the results. For example, see which players are taking mid-range floaters and measure the results versus catch-and-shoot jumpers. As an added bonus, Hoopsalytics shot charts are fully interactive, so you can filter by shot distance, shot type, or even specific areas of the floor. Then watch video clips of all those shots or see the points per shot. Hoopsalytics brings the most powerful analytics to teams of all levels. It's easy to use and affordable. It's like AI for basketball coaches. Visit hoopsalytics.com ball today to learn Learn more and start analyzing your games for free. You mentioned some of the uh, anxieties that your players feel within end game situations in practice. And then you just referenced that some of the mental toughness hurdles that you have to overcome. Are you doing things within practice within your program to kind of role play or replicate some of these situations? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's been really unique. You know, you take last year and we didn't have a game under five points until the national championship. And then it got tied with a minute and we scored. And so we still didn't end up having to go through actually end of game scenarios. And so it's been, it's probably been, you know, two years back to the Tufts game, which I think is the last time we advanced the ball at the end of the game to run something. And, you know, so that's a really unique scenario for this group where even in the postseason, you know, many of those games were, you know, 10 to 15 down the stretch and, that's a really different way to have to hold on versus that kind of fight. And so we work on it in different ways, but still, you know, I think they played in a lot of close games in practice and they've had them and they've been there and they know what it's like in their rise to the occasion kind of group. And so, you know, I think that's really good for them 
that they've had those experiences, but you know, you never know what's going to happen at the end. So we, we try to rep it and be good at all the scenarios and we go through it all the time, you know, so that the day it does happen, they know what to expect. What are some of the challenges of being a heavy favorite? And, you know, maybe some of the things that you did in terms of helping your players cope with that, because we don't think about it that way as much. Yeah. You know, two years ago, it actually felt the hardest. So that was the year that we the first year we were undefeated and we were going into the NCAA tournament, you know, and could tell they were stressed. And so we won the first NCAA game and then the second one. And then one of my juniors, who's now a super senior, said to me, like how relieved they were because they didn't want everybody to think they were overrated. And, you know, that was kind of a unique piece for me to to think about because I was feeling the exact same thing. You know, here we are, we had beaten a lot of the top teams in the country that year and had beaten some of them on the road. And then you get to host. And, you know, the last time we had hosted, we got upset in the first game. And so, you know, like they had those memories. And so I thought, you know, that's a piece that has changed over time. They believe in themselves now, sometimes maybe to a fault. They just, you know, they have played in so many games. I think if you go back to our second loss, I think they've won 88 of their last 89. Wow. And, you know, I do know there's a lot of psychology on you get what you expect and what you believe will happen. You know, we try to let them run a little bit. They believe they're going to win because belief really does play out in outcomes. And I've seen end of game scenarios where, I've been on both sides. One team believed they were going to win and the other team hoped they were going to win. And that team that believes almost always finds a way. It happens in practice all the time. Our five seniors will be behind. They should lose. They're down, you know, by five with a minute to go and they find a way to win every time. And It's frustrating on both sides that they were down five because that probably meant they didn't play very hard. And then they found a way to win. And then it's also frustrating on helping teach our freshmen and sophomores, hey, you had the game. And then you made mistakes. And so it's kind of fun that we actually get to work on that in practice. But, you know, I think we want them to feel like they can go in in every game in the postseason and win. We want them to feel confident in the plan and confident that if it's not going well, they know we'll adapt and find a way. And I think that's worked for us. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and some ways that you do it. But playing with a lead, as you already referenced, is challenging. It's challenging. And one of the things I mentioned to a coaching client this year was that to flip it from like when we're behind, we always break the game into five minute moments. Okay, we don't have to come back 20 in five minutes. Let's come back five in five minutes. And I said the same thing. Let's flip it. When you're playing with a lead, let's think about it that way in terms of, okay, well, you know, you're up 20. So in this next five minutes, let's stay up 15. You know, that type of thing and to kind of make realistic things for them in terms of kind of those barriers because they're playing with a lot of leads. I'm curious what you've come up with. Well, we talk a lot, you know, this won't shock you. We talk a lot about the math of it Mm. in terms of, you know, we are up 10 to 15. How many possessions is it going to take them to be back in the game? You know, what is the reality there? And so we can give them six extra possessions by our choices on offense. Or we can understand the math. We're, you know, hopefully good enough that we can burn 20 seconds on the shot clock every time. And, you know, if, if you are around our team, you know, they don't have a problem finding a shot in four seconds. But, you know, they can, they can find a way to get a shot up pretty quickly. And so some of it, we just try to relax them by understanding, okay, this is the math of it. And sometimes, you know, we'll appeal to their ego and 
you know, we had a game this year that we weren't scoring very well. And I looked up and said, we should not have to score again to win. You know, you now know you have the number one defense in the country. It has held us for two years. And so on one level, the great thing about defense and rebounding is it travels. And we are a team that is very disciplined on the defensive end and on both offensive and rebounding ends. And so we have faith that that can hold any lead that we have. Whether or not we can make the first shot, that's fine. We'll go get the ball. And I think that is a part of that culture of belief and defense and rebounding helps them understand this is how we close out games. And we don't, you know, we can adapt to playing a slow style and close out games because we can defend and rebound. So you mentioned sleep, you mentioned recovery, you mentioned some of those things that you felt were really good strategies in terms of helping your team be their best at the end of the season. What are some other things beyond obviously having talented players? What are some other things that you feel that you can do as a coach to help your players be the best version of themselves at the right time? Yeah, you know, I think one, we try to be incredibly positive down the stretch with everybody. You know, they know when they mess up and they know when they have a bad play, but you know, practice included, you know, we are always trying to, you know, move them forward. A couple months ago, I read this amazing study and it was geared toward men, but there would be similar effects. And it, it you know, it showed the hormonal levels on of the day of if you're showing your players mistakes they made versus plays they did well and their willingness to take risk. And, you know, we are really careful about you know, understanding that part of, you know, talk about evidence-based things. To be great in the national championship, you have to be willing to take risks. There's no, you can't play it safe in those games. And so everything we're trying to do is encourage them to take, obviously, calculated risks. You know, like they still understand what the system that we have to play in. But, you know, how can we reduce that fear, true fear of failure, and that it'll be okay so that they're willing to take the big shot and that nobody is scared down the stretch. And I thought that played out really well last year. You know, the last couple games, I we were behind at the five-minute mark of the first quarter of every game at, besides the first one of the NCAA tournament. And then by the five-minute mark of the second quarter, I think we had a, a pretty significant lead in every game. And, you know, and it was kind of an interesting piece as our team figured out what the other team was trying to do against us on offense and then how we were going to score against them and, you know, to watch them kind of battle through every game of, okay, they're doing it a little bit different. This is how we're going to have to attack and then go from there and, you know, not have that major meltdown when things didn't go well. You know, I think the national championship was 16 to five and thank goodness I couldn't literally find the score in the building because it was right over my head until I was like, you know, we'd hit a couple shots because um, we all knew it was not feeling well. I joked about that. I had to lean down on one of my assistants. And I'm like, I can't find the score. And she's like, it's a small corner over there. But, you know, just that resilience. I think we build that through practice of constantly, you know, putting them in situations that are going to be hard, that they're going to fail at and still building them up through that. That's a whole year process, but a little bit more right now because it is going to be hard at times. And then we do things where it's like we know they need to be successful. And so we put them in positions that they're going to be successful and build confidence. So I think it's kind of a going back and forth. But the last few days before a game, we want everything to be positive. We want them to have success and to feel good about it heading in. 
Well, I love that study and I love the connection that you made to what you do. I'm curious even more to go deeper about actual coaching behaviors that help reflect that. Can you give us some actual coaching behaviors that we can reflect to our players? Yeah. Well, besides just how we talk to them, you know, we are right now, anything that's going well, we're pointing it out. And so then I think the next piece of besides just pointing those things out is, you know, like we are purposely putting them in game scenarios on offense. This is how they're going to defend it. We, you know, we know they're going to have to defend it. This is exactly what we're going to run again. It's that they're going to score it. And, you know, and so we're doing all those things right now we are doing is this is what is going to happen. This is how we're going to counter it. This is how we're going to score it. And so I just think they get so used to understanding you can only defend this four ways. They will do this. We will do this. Score the ball and make sure they're able to do that in those skill sets. And so hopefully at this point, we're way past. Do we have we're not asking them to do anything that their skill sets can't do. You know, like that we're, we're past the point of building skill sets. But we are at the point of we have built three months of habits and just a few minutes every day keeps that neural pathway open, strong. And so that's really what we're trying to do is, you know, we have built all these neural pathways. They now only take, you know, 30, 30 seconds to a couple minutes to keep them there. And so we just rebuild, reemphasize every single day on the very specific skill sets that we know matter. Zone rebounding, the ball gets shot from here. This is our rebounding assignment. Gets shot from here, rebounding assignment. Transition, this is what we're going to look for. This is how we're going to get it. And I think that confidence for them that they know the plan, they know why it's the plan, they know how it applies to them, makes them really good. Because there's not a scenario in a game that pops up. And I thought a great moment the other day, we were playing a game and I didn't realize the team had shifted defenses. You know, I mean, they just switched and I was looking at something else. And they flipped and I, you know, our point guard immediately flipped us into whatever. And we came back and they, they got a shot up before I even saw what happened, to be honest. And she came back and she just looked at me. She goes, oh, they went to a two, three. And I'm like, okay. You know, like they understand this is how, what, this is all, all the things they can do. This is the way we're going to counter it. And there's no indecisiveness, which is what I really think builds confidence. Absolutely. And, and freedom to be able to yes. make that decision without you. Right. Which is also yes. something that you've built throughout the season. Another thing that you've worked on throughout the season, obviously, is special situations, but they yeah. become heightened as you get into the playoffs and then obviously through the national championship like you did. So yeah. I'm curious, are there ways to be able to practice special situations in a way that don't create the anxiety that we better not mess this up? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I don't think you can you cannot you cannot change the stress and cortisol levels. Right. You can't change that. But learning a skill. You know, if you're thinking about mastering a skill and how you get belief in a skill. So how are we creating efficacy that they believe that they can do this? Well, one is physically doing it. And so if they haven't physically done the skill and done it well, that's going to be a low likelihood that in the game, that's going to be the time that goes right. So one, we work on it physically. Two is learning from other people. And so while we're working on the skill, they see how they did it. They learn how other people do it. You know, three is giving them the positive encouragement to do it. You know, so whether that's me or all of our coaching staff, before is really teaching them when you're learning a skill and when you're executing a skill, there is going to be some sort of adrenaline surge. And getting them to view that as a non-negative, 
which is, you know, that self-talk that you do, I think is just an important piece of the puzzle that when we are going to be in these big games, we are all going to have the adrenaline surge. And we talk about it, you know, on senior day, you're going to have this adrenaline surge. When you play somebody else on senior day, you're going to have to be better. You know, on our senior day, we talk about that. We don't lose on senior day. You know, like these factors, you cannot replicate what seniors feel going into the end of the year. It's not the same as what the freshmen feel. You know, they've got years of experience and all these other things. And so I think the biggest piece that can happen is we talk about it. You know, the other day when she was like, my heart rate's going up, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Like, that's always going to happen in this moment. And so that's great. Everybody's heart rate's going up. Normal response. We normalize it. Now we still have to overcome. You know what you're supposed to do. Take a few deep breaths. You know, I think the Navy SEALs have a great breathing technique that I do during the National Anthem. We've taught it to our players, and it's the box breathing where you inhale for four seconds, hold, exhale for four seconds, and it's just constant four seconds. And the reason that the Navy SEALs have to do it, you know, they're in life and death situations. And when you get that adrenaline surge from fight or flight, you lose peripheral vision. I mean, that's really dangerous, you know, in a Navy SEALs kind of situation. It's not nearly as dangerous in ours. But being able to control that response helps them execute. So, you know, whatever trick we can give them so that they're able to rise to the occasion versus kind of suffocate in it, you know, it's a constant conversation. You mentioned efficacy, and I think that's a word that many coaches have heard, but perhaps don't even understand the importance and how well it's researched. But basically, again, the extent to which a coach believes that they can affect the performance or the learning of their players, whatever that may be. So can you talk a little bit about efficacy, especially as it relates to coaching efficacy? Yeah. You know, that's a really great one because I would think probably all of my research is, you know, the efficacy of helping your players believe that they can do things. And so, you know, but I think when you flip that as a coach, you know, how do I believe that I can be good at my job, that I can teach and train, that I can come up with game plans, that I can create a strategy that works. And, you know, I think there are obviously a lot of benefits to experience, which means you, you, you got to make a lot of mistakes and learn from them. And, you know, but I think for us, our belief comes down to one, preparedness. You know, how well did we prepare and create a system for our team, you know, in the off season, in the preseason that plays out well? That comes down to a lot of, you know, doing research on offense, on defense, how we teach things, you know, that sort of thing. And then the belief of, unfortunately, it's hard to figure out belief in your ability to win close games until you're in close games. And, you know, if close games are a 50-50 outcome mathematically, the more you can win over 50-50, you know, is probably a sign of your ability to do well and teach well in those situations. And so I think it is equally as important for coaches to go through end of game scenarios as it is players. And one of the things that we do is if it comes down to end of game plays, I am not in charge of that. Our head assistant is in charge of that. And part of that is while things are leading up to that end of game play, there is a lot of coaching that goes on in that minute. And so, you know, our assistant can see where this is going. You know, we are going to need you know, and in the gameplay, we are down to, we already know the set we're obviously going to run, but just getting it on paper. And when they come in, it is the calmest, it is purposely the calmest minute ever. We re-go over everybody's key job, you know, 
This is exactly, and then we praise, put it absolutely in the positive. This is how it is going to play out. You are going to make this shot. You know, we already know this is, if this doesn't go in, you know, we have the backup plan. And so, but, you know, we kind of, I think that piece is really important because if you're trying to do it all, you know, that's a lot of thinking while trying to, you know, for the same thing, the coaches are having a lot of emotional energy too. And so I think it's really important at that moment, you know, if you watched our staff in the national championship as a collective staff, the closer the game got, the calmer the staff got. Because, they, you know, I think you have to absolutely mirror the confidence you want them to have in what's happening. Backup plans. Is that something we share openly with players? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because I think that's part of their confidence. You know, it is not a secret that we shoot a lot of threes. You know, we shoot, we average 28 a game. And it's not a secret that we believe our ability to rebound those at a very high rate helps us win games. But part of that, you know, you think about the confidence of if you're shooting and shooting just 33%, which is effective in terms of points per possession, it means you're going to miss 66% of the time. But their confidence comes from knowing their teammates are going to clean up the boards. And so we point it out all the time. Yep, you missed. They got the rebound. We scored. You know, so I think that matters in terms of the adaptability of, you know, we can have lots of plans. Lots of plans go wrong. We're okay with them going wrong. We're going to have the next plan. And, you know, every now and then we've had to get to like the plan we didn't even come up with for that game. We had to throw everything out and this is what we need to do. And I think, you know, the great thing for us is there's a confidence in what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. And they're willing to all go in and try. And I think that's a part of the culture that's built daily that it's okay to have plan A and it's okay to go to plan D. And we do it all the time where they're coaching themselves. You know, we play games, get together. You need to figure out why it worked, what didn't work. And next time you step on the floor, what are you going to do different? Just so they get used to that mindset of analyzing if it worked or if it didn't and what will they do different versus the negative self-talk on that went poorly. That didn't matter that it went poorly. It just matters on how we're going to try to fix it. One of my, I feel, best coaching years where I developed was a team that was just under-talented and I knew I could take risks because to a yeah. certain extent, it was our only chance to, to try things. And we learned right. a lot of things that year that really helped us. I'm curious if when you have a team that you're going to win some of the games, go into the, some of the games and believe you're going to win some of the games. And when you're up in some of these games, I'm curious, is your risk tolerance yeah. higher? Absolutely. We played a game a few weeks ago where our game strategy that game was not necessarily fully aligned to that game versus who we thought we might have to be in the postseason. But who we thought we might have to be in the postseason, we actually thought might make that a better game. And so there was a risk involved in that piece. But, you know, I thought it was really important that we did something different that might happen that, you know, changed the way we played 10% of the time and, you know, and did it and committed to it for a full game. You know, and so there's obviously inherent risk because if we happen to lose, there's a lot of things that go into it in terms of, you know, NCAA rankings and hosting the game and those sort of things. Last year, when we played that one Friday night game slow, we knew there was an inherent risk to those strategies. And so I think the risk taking part does matter because, you you know, if you are going to need to be adaptable, you can't practice being adaptable at the end. You know, they've got to be used to it. And so there are inherent risks. You know, we laugh. We 
we fell into the zone because we, during the COVID year, made us braver. We never thought we were going to play an entire season. You know, this was when our seniors were freshmen. And so we decided, because we didn't know who was going to be in or out on the court that day, what if we went all zone on the year? And had never done it. And so during that year, we just kept morphing. Why isn't this working? What could we change that makes it different and fit us? And so we did that for the whole year. And then we laugh. We get to the conference tournament. And a team hit four or five shots early. I lost all confidence. And we played man-to-man the rest of the conference tournament in one. And then the next year, we tried to go back to man-to-man. And we got our butts kicked in our last scrimmage. And I said, never mind. We're going to go back to zone until we figure this out. And teams couldn't score. And, you know, then all of a sudden we stayed with it. We stayed with it. We kept adapting. And I thought about if it wasn't for COVID that gave us the freedom to risk everything, we would not now, three years later, have the number one defense in the country and have a zone that's really, we call it the meta zone because it's morphed to what we do. And, it, you know, you wouldn't find it written in any books. But, you know, that that let us take a more a, a risk we would have never taken in a normal season in a normal system. And so you know, that was a good reminder for me that, gosh, sometimes, you know, you have these things that happen and these risks you take, and then you get a result that sometimes are like, oh my gosh, I've been doing it wrong the whole time. Awesome insights. Thank you for sharing. And uh, maybe one last thing on all of this is we tend to lie to players as a coach, right? Like when we try and convince them, oh, you, you know, this team can beat us or, you know, we can beat this team or this and this. And I'm curious, like, if you've dove into any research on that or any experiential knowledge about how we should actually approach some of these things. Because yeah. I always felt like, you know, it's like telling our kids when they're 10, Santa Claus still exists. But, you know, we're lying to them. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great way to think about it. And, you know, one of the, 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 the pillars of building trust from a neuroscience is transparency. And, you know, and so but there's hard parts of that of, Okay, if we're playing a team that maybe we don't think quite has the skill sets, you know, like we can't not be transparent about things. And so I think what we've tried to do is be really transparent about whatever we can be transparent about and, you know, give them all of the whys. Like, I think that really does matter. But there's also this piece of that, you know, you're they don't they're never going to believe or I very rarely will believe how good they can be. And a lot of what you're doing is trying to convince them of their potential, which, you know, now there's this gap of reality versus potential where you're teaching and coaching them based on their end potential and not who they are right now. And so that's a really unique gap of, you know, part of it's the experience of knowing where they can get to and coaching them in that manner and then getting them to there. But yeah, you know, it's been it's, you know, I think it's been really hard in some of the game prep things. And where we have gone to is we have taken it away from maybe building the other team up, which is what I think we used to do in a way that was maybe not always accurate to, okay, this is what should, you know, by the numbers this is where we think we should go. And what are we trying to work on? And I think that has been a much bigger influence on them of, okay, we could go skate through this. But what are our real end goals and what do we have on the line? And, you know, I think that's been one of the keys last two years to our undefeated season is we know based on how the NCAA rankings go, we're not going to be able to have a great strength of schedule. It it is what it is. We can only control seven games and that's fine. And so every time we take the court, we always talk about we are playing for home court advantage. And to do that, we know we have to be perfect. 
And so we can't take a night off. We love playing in the Beck Center. We have been fortunate to host the last, you know, and the only year we didn't get to host was the year the COVID was, they canceled the tournament. But we've hosted, you know, all five years. And that is what we play for every night that we know we want to be at home. And so that requires perfection. And that gives them a goal to aim for every night that is about us and not about our opponents. So much, so many insights, coach. Thank you. Obviously, incredible, incredible success. And, you know, another opportunity this year. So talk to us a little about this year and what you foresee since we just uh, prepared you for the end of the season. Yeah, well, we're excited. I think, you know, there's always a little bit of luck in the postseason in terms of you want to stay healthy. You know, you want to have the best players on the court. And so, you know, sometimes injuries happen and illness happens. And so you're aware of that. So I think, you know, one of the things we're always trying to do is just make sure we have the next person ready to go. And, you know, because of that, our starters, you know, generally only play 22 to 26 minutes a game because we always want that next group ready for not only the postseason, but next year. But this is the most fun time of the year. They survived, you know, the grind, the January, early February, where you have to be better every night when it's hard, earns you the right to go have fun now and be amazing. And so we're, we're very excited. We are grateful that we work in an athletic department that props our team up. We will have great crowds. It'll be an amazing environment for every game that we get to host. You know, I think our team is really fun to watch. They get, they pull and suck in fans. And so, you know, I'm just excited to be able to watch them go through another postseason and and have a chance to go do great things and, and see what they can make of this experience. Every year, it's a new team with new players that have new roles. And so, it, you know, there's still a little bit that's different this year and a lot that's the same. Uh, so we're excited. It, it'll be a lot of fun. And, you know, I hope for them that they're able to make a deep run and and get what they've earned over the last, you know, six months, eight months since the last time. Awesome. Well, we look forward to watching the end. I've watched your team on Synergy a number of times and really enjoy watching your team play, Coach, and grateful for you to be able to share the game with us. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chris, for having me. It's obviously, you know, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to talk about them and what we do and and for everything that you do for basketball and how you approach it. I just think the more we can have, you know, kind of an understanding of the positive impacts and the way to, you know, to go about it is awesome. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Thank you.